Hi guys, uh, Pastor Greg Corcoran here from Battlefield Baptist Church. Uh, pray that this sermon is a blessing, an encouragement, and a challenge to you in your walk with the Lord. Additionally, I just wanted to say that if we here at Battlefield can ever be a blessing to you, please don't hesitate to contact us. And the best way to do that is through our website at battlefieldbaptist.org. Again, I pray this sermon blesses you, encourages you, and uh, that you'll fall more in love with God, more in love with his word, and more in love with people. I'd like to speak to you this morning concerning the truth about hell. Truth be told, um, as soon as Pastor Greg had mentioned uh, that he was going to preach on heaven during the anniversary Sunday, I knew almost immediately that the Lord was laying upon my heart to preach about hell. I just felt like they ought to know um, both options, right? The Bible's pretty clear. It only teaches of two options. If you believe of something else, it's, um, it's not from the Bible. You don't believe the Word of God um, because the Bible teaches that there is a, a heaven to gain, but there is also a hell to shun, and, and that's the only two options it presents. My intention's not to scare the hell out of anybody. Excuse, <laughs> excuse the pun. Um, it, it really isn't. But if you come to repentance and faith through an increased knowledge of this doctrine, then praise God. We're going to do everything we can to come alongside of you and support you um, in this time, in your, in your new journey of faith, as it were. Honestly, my, my prayer for this message has been as we as a body of believers increase in our learning and in our knowledge of this doctrine of eternity, um, that it would bring about this fire inside of us. Not, not <laughs> again, excuse the pun, not this, it would bring about this fire of personal evangelism in our lives. Listen, if we know the truth concerning hell and we refuse to warn anybody, then the love of God may not dwell inside of us, right? It's the, the most loving thing that we can do is to warn other people of what is coming. That's why Jesus spoke on hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus spoke on hell more than everybody else in the New Testament combined. Hell is needed. That's not popular. That's not a popular point. That is my first point, by the way. Hell is needed, though. If there is no hell, then why did Jesus Christ sacrifice himself on the cross? Right? It would be meaningless. He died rather to save us. To save us from what? Hell. Hell. Hell is needed. God is, is holy, right? And to that point, I, I don't think many in this room would, would really argue, right? God is holy, but closely related to his holiness is his wrath, which is in fact, as John Stott called it, his holy reaction to evil. He went on to say in his book, The Cross of Christ, what is common to the biblical concepts of holiness and wrath, to the holiness and wrath of God, is the truth that they cannot coexist with sin. God's holiness exposes sin. His wrath opposes it. So sin cannot approach God, and God cannot tolerate sin. Listen, if God is a God of righteousness and justice, then hell is necessary or else wrath is left to us. And we know that that's not biblical, right? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament over and over declares, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. If scripture is the inerrant and infallible word of God, then the doctrine of judgment and unending punishment for the unrepentant in hell is necessary, 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, he said, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so the word in the original language for everlasting, right, with reference to punishment, and the word for eternal with reference to reward, it's the same Greek word, ionius, right? And it means perpetual, without end, never to cease, age after age, right? These two are inseparable because it is the same word, right? As plainly as I can state it, if there is an eternal heaven to gain, as we learned about last week, then there has to be an eternal hell to shun. Hell is needed, but hell's neglected. Hell is neglected. The Bible, the Bible clearly teaches that there's life after, the, after death. Right? For, for those who are qualified for blessing and those who are qualified for judgment. But because the Bible reveals that God is, is a God of, of grace and love and mercy, this tension develops inside of us, right? And this, this, there's this tension between a loving God and, and a righteous God who demands absolute justice of the wicked. And this tension has done a few things, right? It's done a whole lot, but I really only want to highlight two of them this morning. First, it's caused many, if not most churches, to simply focus on the grace and love of God, right? And hey, why not? I get it. One sermon's a whole lot easier to stomach than the other. It's a whole lot easier to come and listen to, to how God loves you and how he's shown his grace and mercy than it is to come and listen to the sermon about his righteousness. In fact, a, a study is conducted by the, the Pew Research Center. They put it out in 2020. And the research showed that only 10% of evangelical sermons mention the phrase eternal hell or variants like eternity in hell. Barna Associates showed that only 32% of adults see hell as an actual place of torment and suffering where people's souls go after death. And that's because of this tension between the God of grace and love and the God of righteousness has helped father many views and variations um, concerning the duration and the extent of this punishment, right? And these variations have occupied theologians for a long, long time. So the, the, the crux is what does the Bible teach then, right? What does the Bible actually teach about hell? Well, the Old Testament um, was somewhat murky, but also clear. Uh, hopefully I can make that make some sense. And it's clear that judgment follows the death of the wicked. So if you look in Job 21, Right, and just context, if you're going to turn there, just a little bit of context, um, you got to read like two chapters at a time in Job, right? The, in chapter 20 is his friend trying to console him. If you know anything about the book, they all do a terrible job. Um, if you need consolation, don't look to Job's friends. Don't be a Job's friend either. And uh, so his friends are trying to console him, all these things that have happened. And, and essentially, his, his argument is that um, the wicked has what's coming for him. And he's laying it out this whole chapter. They're going to get what's coming for them. And everything that they lay out is just here on this earth, right? In this life. And here's Job's response in chapter 21. You look at verse 30 and it says, And that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction. He said, They shall be brought forth 
to the day of wrath? Who shall declare um, his way unto his face? And who shall repay him for what he hath done? Yet shall he be brought to the grave and shall remain in the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet unto him and every man shall draw after him as there is innumerable before him. How then comfort ye me in vain, seeing your answers there remaineth falsehood. Right, thus, thus not only does Job believe that there's judgment for the wicked, the unrepentant after this life, but also there's no escaping this judgment for the unrepentant as some religions would suggest. We also see in the Old Testament that it teaches the, the judgment and wrath of God is more than just a mere physical death. Isaiah 33, verse 14, and sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? And he that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of impressors, um, that shaketh his hands from the holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from the hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing of evil, of the wicked whom God is going to condemn, the same prophet later writes in chapter 66, verse 24, he says, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that devour and have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to the flesh. Clearly, the Old Testament teaches there's there's judgment for the unrepentant after this life and, and that this punishment is more than just a mere physical death as some would suggest, right? The principal term that's used in the Old Testament speaking of, of life after this life is the word sheol and it occurs 65 times we find it in the King James. It's translated 31 times just to grave, the word grave. Another 31 times the King James translates it to hell. And three times it translates it to pit. And so it's clear from the Old Testament that Sheol in many, many cases means no more than just the grave. Sometimes it's just where the body is laid. Yet in some cases there is a debate whether the, the term grave is best or even a proper designation for the word. One such gray area passage you can find in Psalm 49, 14. It says this, it says, like sheep, um, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. And so this uncertainty, right, these, these kind of gray area passages of how Sheol, and even its New Testament counterpart, as we'll learn in just a minute, um, at Hades, how it should be interpreted has led to this extensive debate. And I had some of it laid out, and I took it out this morning. I was like, nah, we're not going to go through all that. You can study it if you'd like, right? I'd like, check it out for yourself. Um, it's this debate concerning the two-compartment theory. Maybe you've heard of it concerning Sheol and Hades, two different compartments. In either case, no matter where you land on this, the Old Testament is clear that it teaches there is judgment for the unsaved, judgment for the unrepentant after this life. And that that judgment continues over an extended period of time. And the New Testament goes on to confirm this. Right? So as described by the Old Testament, Sheol is also a place of darkness. Job 10, 21. Before I go whence, I shall not return even to the land of darkness. 
and the shadow of death. Verse 22, a land of darkness as darkness itself. That's dark. And of the shadow of death without any order and where the light is as darkness. Job goes on to say in chapter 14, verse 22, but his flesh upon him shall have pain and his soul within him shall mourn. So one in Sheol feels pain and they mourn. Deuteronomy 32, 22, for a fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn into the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with her increase and shall set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Shall burn unto the lowest, right? This is a reference where Sheol implies that this punishment that goes on for an extended period of time, right? And a life after this life for the unrepentant, this punishment is by fire. Right? And note the state of consciousness that's um, referred to in the Old Testament of those in hell. The prophet Isaiah, right? He mentions, and, and contextually in this passage, before we read it, the Babylonians are, are killed in this divine judgment from the Lord. Um, they are killed, and they're pictured as being greeted by those in Sheol who have died earlier. Isaiah said this in chapter 14, verse 9. Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee. Even all the chief ones of the earth, it hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of all the nations. All they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou as become as weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? And so the, the picture that the Old Testament paints, it, it, is, it is clear, but it is also maybe somewhat incomplete or even obscure, um, but unpleasant to say the least. Right? And it paints these, these details that are somewhat obscure concerning hell, um, but the facts are clear, right? And so if we were to put it all together, right, there is, there is life after death, right? Life um, for the righteous, as we learned last week, is blessed in heaven with the Lord. Life for the wicked is one of divine judgment and punishment. It is a place of darkness where the wicked is conscious in, in a state of pain and mourning as they are punished by fire. And the Old Testament gives no intimation that this punishment should be taken, should not be taken literally, or that it um, should not be taken eternally. And so the New Testament, however, casts additional light. Praise God for the New Testament, too. <laughs> Praise God. It casts additional light on this. On this subject, there are three different words that's used in regards to life after death in the New Testament. In general, the New Testament word Hades is the equivalent to the Old Testament word that we have, Sheol. Hades is found used in Matthew, Luke, Acts, Revelation, though the idea is found in other passages as well. And so the same issue exists with Hades that exists with Sheol, right, as to whether it should simply just be translated grave or whether it's referring to something even more extensively. So that same issue exists. But what is clear is that Hades seems to be used with reference to the temporary place of the unsaved, the unrepentant, after death, but it is not used in relationship to the lake of fire or eternal punishment. That word is Gehenna. That word is Gehenna. And it's the most definitive term in the New Testament with regards to everlasting punishment. It is always, always translated hell. 
And there's also one instance of the Greek word Tartarus, and that's found in 2 Peter 2, 4, and it's translated hell, and it's considered to be the equivalent of Gehenna. And so Jesus himself, as I mentioned earlier at the very beginning, spoke on hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. All the references of Gehenna come from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. Gehenna is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Gehenim, meaning son of the valley of Gehenim or valley of Hinnom. And so this valley is south of Jerusalem. It's where some of the ancient Israelites um, used to pass their children through the fire, right? That's King James where they sacrificed their children. And it's a heinous picture if you've ever read anything about it. Um, it was this um, false prophet, the or this, this false god, um, this, this Israelite god, Moloch. And it was this giant bronze statue, and it had these hands that swooped um, low, made of bronze, and they would light a fire underneath the hands, and they would kindle that fire until um, the hands began to glow red hot, and they would place their babies into the hands. They would pass through the fire of Moloch. They would sacrifice um, their children, and they did it in the valley of Hinnom. And obviously God despises this practice so much so that he strictly forbades the Israelites from having anything to do with it. And that's why we read in Leviticus 18:21, and thou shalt not let any of the seed pass through the fire of Moloch, neither um, shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. And in another prophetic warning, God renamed the valley of Hinnom as the valley of slaughter. And so we read this in Jeremiah 19.1. Thus saith the Lord, go and get a potter's earthen bottle and um, take of the ancients of the people and of the ancients of the priests and go forth into the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the east gate and proclaim there the words that I shall tell thee and say, hear ye the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, which um, the which whosoever heareth his ears shall tingle because they have forsaken me and they have estranged this place and have burned incense and two other gods whom neither um, they nor their fathers have known nor the kings of Judah um, and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. They have built also to the high places of Baal and they have burned their sons with fire, burnt for offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spoke it, neither came it into my mind. Therefore, behold, the day come, um, saith the Lord, that this place shall no, no longer be called Tophet, um, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. But they didn't listen. Right, The Israelites didn't listen, and the evil kings of Judah, um, like Ahaz, they used the Valley of Hinnom for what had to have been nothing short of this demonic practice. Thus we read in 2 Chronicles 28.3. It says, Moreover, he burnt incense in the Valley of the Sun in Hinnom, and he burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So to punish Judah for these wicked acts that the king had led them to do, um, it, God bought Babylon against them, right? And he uses this pagan nation as judgment, right? To judge Judah for these acts. And so it's not till 70 years later that the Jews are then allowed back in to rebuild. And upon their return, the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Slaughter is repurposed from a place of emphasis to this ever-burning trash heap. <laughs> 
right? Child sacrifice ceased. And Gehenna became this place where the corpses of criminals and dead animals and trash and all manner of undesirables was thrown to be incinerated, to, to be destroyed, and it was ever burning. And so this is the word picture that's painted all throughout the New Testament by Jesus when he uses the word Gehenna. It's this reference to this everlasting state of wicked where some of the most heinous and vile acts were committed. Matthew 5. Verse 22, Jesus said this, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say unto his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire, Gehenna. He goes on to say in verse 29, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into Gehenna, hell. And if thy right eye offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into Gehenna, in hell, into this ever-burning, perpetual punishment, this ever-burning, perpetual place of wickedness. And so the idea that Jesus is, is relaying is, listen, do some self-reflection. You need to, to look at yourself and do whatever it takes, even to the most extreme measures to make sure that you don't go to hell. If you got to cut one of your eyes out, then so be it. Do whatever it takes to make sure you don't end up in hell. And he reiterates some of the, the, some of the Old Testament scriptures teaching of a place of judgment and punishment for the wicked using this word picture over and over where some of the most heinous and vile acts are committed. The book of Mark, Jesus reiterates some similar remarks and he adds to the terror of hell. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands and to go into hell, Gehenna, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off, for it is better that thou shalt halt into life having, um, than having two feet and being cast into hell, Gehenna, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, for it's better um, for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and to be cast into Gehenna, hell fire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched speaks to this unending torment of hell, always decaying, yet never not existing, never consumed, always burning, yet never quenched. You know a common misconception concerning hell is the theory of annihilationism, that you just cease to exist after some unstated period of time. Listen, hell is perpetual, and it is permanent, right? Two of the most important references occur in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 13. 
We see this, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they um, were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So John implies that the grave is someday going to give up the bodies of the wicked dead and that they are going to be resurrected in order to enter into eternal punishment into the lake of fire. And so the fact that they're still in existence and that they were not terminated after they died physically, but they're still alive and they're still suffering in Hades uh, uh, in this seemingly um, intermediate state up until this point. And then that state is emptied into or cast into the lake of fire, the second death, eternal separation from God. The lake of fire doesn't provide annihilation. It provides continual suffering, Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen, the devil is cast into the lake of fire at the end of the millennium. The beast and the false prophet were cast into the lake of fire at the beginning of Jesus' thousand-year reign, and they're still seen to be in existence when the devil is cast in. Day and night, forever and ever, the wicked is stated to be cast into the lake of fire. Right, Some who suffered in Hades, in some cases for thousands of years, are then transferred. So yeah, if you want to consider hell as, as, as not so permanent in terms of Hades, then that's fine. But Hades is going to be cast into the lake of fire, which is permanent. Hell is perpetual. It is permanent. John goes on to imply that you have this permanent place stating in Revelation 21, verse 8, but the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all the liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Judgment for the unrepentant is real. The punishment for the unrepentant wicked is real. Hell is permanent. That's not... I believe that the fire spoken of is real. I believe that it's literal. I've heard a lot of different theories about this, but the, I believe that the fire spoken of in relation to the, the penalty of sin is real. In a, in a parable, right, we, we expect figures of speech. You get it all the time throughout the Word of God. We expect these figures of speech, but in the explanation of that parable, um, we expect that, that the things that are explained um, by the literal facts uh, of the thing that they're intended to represent, Right? And so we see in the parable of the tares, turn there with me in Matthew 13. We see in the parable of the tares, every item is explained in this parable except the fire. Right? It remains the fire in both the interpretation of the parable and in the parable itself. Matthew 13, if you were to begin in verse 30, it says this. Let both grow together. Until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say unto the reapers, gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in the bundles, and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so you get the explanation of the parable later. We'll read this in verse 41. The Son of Man 
shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. The fire is still fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then if you note, just a few verses later, we find another parable, and the same principle applies here, except this time the interpretation includes fire, whereas in the parable itself it just talks about being cast out. And so we read this in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and they gathered the good into the vessels, but they cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Is the fire real? I suspect so. But if it's not, it's only because Jesus is explaining a reality that is far worse than anything that we can possibly imagine. So he has to use the only thing that our finite brain is going to be able to comprehend to help us understand the torments of hell. R.A. Torrey, right, a, a famous evangelist, pastor, and writer, he said this, if hellfire is merely figurative, right, speaking of the hellfire, then Jesus depicts eternal punishment using one of the most painful tragedies one could imagine. Hell is needed, and it's neglected, and it, it is perpetual and permanent. And listen, hell is crowded. Every road with the exception of one, leads to hell. Every single road, Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus said, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which shall go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. If scripture is the inerrant, infallible word of God, then listen, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, uh, Mormonism, we can put secular humanism in there. You're not going to like this, but we can throw Catholicism in there, atheism, any other religious denomination sect, cult, or denial thereof that puts an emphasis on what you do, on what we do, rather than what Jesus Christ has already done leads to hell. Broad is the way that leads into destruction. It's just the word of God. But Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Hell is crowded because all roads lead there with the exception of one. Paul wrote in Romans 3, beginning in verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understand. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, and their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have known not. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Hell is crowded. And hell 
was close. That was close. Job, Job stated, for we are but of yesterday. We know nothing because our days upon earth are a shadow. David wrote in Psalm 39, verse 4, Lord, make me to know mine end. In the measure of my days, what is it that I may know how frail I am? Asaph said, for, for he remembereth that we are but flesh, a wind that passes the way and cometh not again. James wrote, whereas you know not what shall be on tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor. It appears for a little time, and then it passes away. It vanishes away. Life is fragile, and with each breath, we're drawing closer and closer to eternity. Hell is close, but hell is avoidable. Hey, listen, praise God for a church that preaches and teaches Jesus Christ. And, and not, this is not me. I'm not tooting my horn, man. Pastor Gray, Carl Skinner, hell is avoidable. If you come into this church and you die and enter into eternity in hell, it'll be your fault. Hell's avoidable. Jesus' ministry was, was three and a half years. And they suspect that he, he spoke on hell, at least if, if we go to count it up through the New Testament, over 70 times. Why would he spend so much time, so much of his precious short time, warning people of a place that they could not avoid? Hell is avoidable. Yes, all have sinned. Yes, all have come short of the glory of God. Yes, there is a wage, there's a payment for that sin. But yes, the gift of God, should you choose to accept it, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And just the, the, the simplest illustration of salvation and, and how we can be saved that I can possibly think of it comes from Luke 23, and we, we see this in Luke 23, um, verse 32. Turn there with me. Hell is avoidable. We read this in Luke 23, beginning in verse 32. And there were also two other male factors led with him to be put to death. So Jesus was to be crucified between two criminals. And when they were coming to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the two male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. In verse 34, it reads, Then said, Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And they parted his raiment, and they cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying um, that ye have saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And then the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription was also written over him in the letters of Greek, in Latin and Hebrew, it said, this is the king of the Jews. And then we read this in verse 39. 
And then one of the malefactors, which were hanged, he railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Dost thou, now, dost thou not fear God, seeing that you're in the, the same condemnation? He said, What are you doing? Have you no fear of the Lord? You're in the same predicament that he's in. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou now fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? He said, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man he's done nothing amiss. And he said unto him, Jesus, Lord, um, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, um, um, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The second thief wasn't able to get baptized. He never partook of the Lord's Supper or sacraments or any other thing. He never helped the old lady across the street with her groceries into the door. He never done any of these things or any of the other things that, that we rely on somehow to get us to heaven. He didn't have a chance to do any of it. Hell is avoidable. He admitted his sin. He recognized, listen, I'm deserving of death. But this guy is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. I deserve to die because I'm a sinner. And he called upon him to save him from this predicament that he was in and to save him out of this predicament and into paradise. Hell is avoidable. Listen, are you willing to admit your sin? Are you willing to recognize that your sin is deserving of death? Are you willing to trust that the Lord died on the cross so that you can be forgiven of your sins in the very moment that you place your faith in him? If so, hell is avoidable. We're going to enter into a, a time of invitation, actually, right now. The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. If you leave here and die and end up in hell, it will be your fault. Hell is avoidable. Repent and come to faith. You don't have to go there. Call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. If you stand with me for just one moment. We're not going to belabor this invitation. I don't want to draw it out. I don't want to try to draw on people's emotions. If you would bow your heads with me for just a second, I'm going to pray. And if you need to repent, if you need to be saved, call upon the name of the Lord. If you have no idea where to start that process, burn up the aisle. Man, you come down here. There's people with a Bible that would love to show you how you can call upon the Lord. Hell is avoidable. You don't have to go there. Father in heaven, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you died on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins, so that we don't have to go to hell. Father, I pray that you would work in the heart of one that may be on the fence and that you would draw them to repentance in this very moment. Father, I pray that you would work on the hearts of our people this morning. 
that a fire would be ignited inside of us that seeks to warn the unrepentant of hell. Use this time as you see fit, Father. We pray this in your name.